those were things that you couldn't have planned for. You know, we, we knew we had a good architect who knew the rules. We were, we were most, we're 99% complying and council was in support of it from day one. But it was these things that came into play and you just had to be prepared for it. You are listening to the Property Developer Podcast, your home for tips, ideas, and inspiration to help take your developing to the next level. Now, here's your host, Justin Getty. Hello, and welcome to episode 59 of the show. Thanks for joining me. I hope you are well. I'm doing fine. Been busy chipping away at my projects, and I've got another great guest coming up for you today. A Sydney-based developer who's taking an unusual pathway in terms of the types of projects she is tackling. Before we get to that, here's a quick update on what I've been up to. So the public notice period is over on my project going through planning, and I was somewhat relieved to only get four objections to our proposal. And they all relate to the unusual crossover alignment that cuts across the road reserve out the front of the neighbouring property. This strange crossover alignment was something council requested us to do, so it's an interesting outcome. But there were no comments about the style or density of our project. However, Council still has some concerns about what we are proposing, so we are working to address these issues before they make a decision. On my other project, the work on construction documentation continues. On the engineering front, we are working through what type of foundations would be best. Raft slabs seem to be the best option, but we are also exploring whether waffle slabs may be better. So there is a conversation going on between the engineers, architects, and builder to sort that out. And the basic 3D modelling of the site has been done by the architects, so you can start to see how the built form is going to look across the site. Which I always enjoy because you can really start to see how the project is going to look. And we have just about finalised the interior design after a bit of back and forth about what would be suitable for the local market. I've also been having regular discussions with our selling agents about what's happening in the market, what buyers are looking for, and how we can best position the project for sale. The essential message seems to be that it's tough out there. Buyer levels are down and there is general caution among prospects, with off-the-plan sales being particularly challenging. Okay, don't forget, if you are interested in learning how to develop property, then email me about the Property Developing Mentoring Program that is available to help you get started. There's nothing like a guiding hand to show you the best way when you're starting out. So email me, justin at propertydeveloperpodcast.com, and I will send you some further information. All right, on to today's guest, Davina Wong. Davina is a Sydney-based developer with a very interesting story to share. She's certainly taken a different approach to developing property and has cleverly worked a number of different angles in terms of project types and how you make them work. Forget about sticking to one project type and staying with it for a few projects for this developer. I think you'll enjoy how Davina isn't afraid to try new things, how you can pivot if something doesn't go the way you planned, and how she negotiates her way through challenging situations like securing an option agreement with neighbours. Keep an ear out for how Davina explains the importance of understanding your limits and risk tolerance and how you can still achieve results through partnering to help mitigate risk. I started off by asking Davina about her favourite food, and it was slightly unusual. Probably kimchi, although I'm not Korean. (laughs) I love Korean food. (laughs) That sounds like something my wife would say. (laughs) It's very random, but kimchi is actually a superfood. It's good for you. And uh, yeah, we we try and make a once a year trip to Korea just to um, eat Korean food. And kimchi seems to be the staple food in all the Korean restaurants. 
So uh, love kimchi. So yeah, I probably would eat till I'm sick. <laughs> and wash down with a nice glass of kombucha. Yeah, yeah, some uh, Asian uh, beer. <laughs> yeah, I think you, that's actually the healthiest response I've ever had on the show. <laughs> and why Korean food? What, where's your uh, interest from that come from? Uh, I think it's grown over the years where I used to like Japanese food, then you evolved to Thai food and then evolved to Korean food. It's just the taste buds that you grow to get the strong taste, like spicy food. Yeah. And um, Korean food, um, the, the Korean barbecue and some of them are quite spicy. So, yeah, I love the, the spicy food. And, Ooh, okay. in, and with the cold weather, you have a barbecue outdoors as well. Uh, on the street side so that's um pretty good as well that's you know with the wind blowing and then you're cooking barbecue on the side of the road yeah oh it sounds pretty good yeah roadside <laughs> barbecue street food usually is pretty good <laughs> cheap and nasty yes so we're here today to talk about your developing projects so can you give us a bit of a background on who you are how you got into property development and the kind of projects that you're doing yeah so in terms of property development it wasn't something that uh, we jumped in straight away um, it's actually me and my husband then partner he's now my husband but um, we started off property investing uh, I think like most people do you know it's the easier way to get in is to invest buy and hold it's safer so uh, we started off investing. I read a lot of books and magazines. I think Your Investment Property was one of those books I started off with. Um, and after a couple of years, uh, we got a bit impatient with the growth, just waiting around. So we decided to uh, manufacture our own growth and we then evolved into uh, property renovations. And after a few years of property renovations, we thought the the margin was a bit tight uh, and a lot of other people were also doing renovations. So there was an opportunity one day where we saw a, uh, a renovation deal that could be subdivided and it was actually a house. Uh, so using the skill that we had with a renovation background, we actually renovated the house and put a wall in between the house and that's when we um, got into property development and have been addicted to I guess the margin that property development brings uh, you know in terms of the stress and hard work that you go through for property renovations whether it's uh, cosmetic or structural it's the same amount of stress that you would go through for development so in terms of risk and reward you might as well you know, put yourself into development. And so that's why we're now um, mainly concentrating in development. So from there, uh, from a subdivision, we moved on to working on a six townhouse site, uh, 49 bedroom sporting house. Those, those are the new generation boarding houses. Um, we've rezoned land as well, uh, where we saw an opportunity. Uh, there was a house that we bought and that was the land that was a bit of, of an abnormally. We saw an opportunity to rezone that particular land. We rezoned the whole sh that particular street and everyone got the benefit of it and we rezoned it from R3 to R4. So there was a bit of a paper pushing. So development was is an exciting space where 
it's not just straight go in, make something pretty. It's actually a lot of um, strategies that you can do in, in develop, development and the rewards that you get is uh, quite large. And some people might say it's riskier, but I think if you know the right strategy is actually less risky because there's a lot of other strategies that you can do like options or um, you know paper pushing just to get a DA through and not build. Those are some of the things that uh, are less risky compared to buying a house. You're stuck in there and you actually have to lodge a DA and knock down a few walls and renovate it. And then when it's not right, then you're stuck with that product. So that's why we've um, evolved and moved from, you know, investing, then renovation, cosmetic structural, then now into uh, development. Yes. Well, I often say that we did a renovation at our house about 12 months ago and I did some of the work and I was reminded again why I much prefer doing property <laughs> development than <laughs> renovations as it's hard work. So, Same amount of hard work. Well, it's just, it's, yeah. It's dusty and messy and I think I much prefer delegating to other people to do painting and getting things fixed. So I can understand where you're coming from. But what sort of time frame are we talking of moving from property investing to then developing? Um, look, I think some people move faster. For us, it was a, it, it was a gradual journey. So it wasn't like when I started off in property that I knew I was actually going to get into development. I didn't know I was actually going to be a developer. It For us, the timeline was we had a good go at the buy and hold strategy for, say, about four years, and we weren't quite happy with the growth. You know, after about three or four years, you're not seeing the growth, you start thinking, you know, change strategy. And that's when we moved into renovations. So renovations and another, say, four years. And then we stumbled across and evolved into development and uh, we've been doing development for the last four years now uh, and time just, just fly when you think about when you first started. Well, time moves slow when you're doing development. That's the, the one downside. It does take a bit longer than a renovation. Yeah. So what was the first uh, what, um, project, property development project uh, that you tackled? Was it the... The six townhouses or was it the land rezoning? Uh, in terms of a development? Yep. Yeah. Uh, the first development would be the rezoning. Again, it was something that we bought and we saw the potential, but we also have a few exit strategies. So had that not worked out, we would have either lodged a DA for um, a duplex or blocker units or we would just renovate the house and hold it, for example. So, but... The plan A worked out. We lodged a um, – it was not so much a DA. It was more like a proposal to council uh, using a private town planner to argue and to tell them that why that land should not be an R3 and that it should be an R4, our house as well as the ones um, next to us. And from that, within about three years or might be less, two and a half years uh, we doubled our money, um, and that house actually took a long time to sell. It took about four or five months to sell. No one wanted the house. It was actually a, a derelict house, and we basically pay, had a quick cosmetic renovation so that we could rent it out for a decent amount of money, and we were also lucky that that particular site had a huge garage at the back, so we were able to then rent out the garage as well. So 
all in all, we were quite neutrally geared while we were holding that for two years, while we rezoned it. Okay. Uh, so that was just one of our first ones, yeah. Sorry to interrupt, but yeah, yeah. can you just talk me through a little bit more about that? Um, I'm not familiar with um, your zoning up uh, in New South Wales. Oh, yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> um, what, R3 to R4, what's the difference of that? What sort of, what size block of land are you talking? Just to give us some, base, some basic, yeah. uh, basic idea of what you were looking at. Yeah, so the land is not that big. It's about 670 square metres. Yep. Um, it's in uh, Canterbury. I'm not sure if you – most people in Sydney would know Canterbury. Canterbury is um, about 12 to 15 kilometres into the city, so it's still very metro, Sydney. Um, and R, it was zone R3, and it was the last block on the street. R3, you can only do townhouses. Um, or duplexes, and R4, you can uh, have. You can still do continue to do townhouses, but you can probably fit more townhouses because you get um, higher FSR, so floor space ratio. Mm-hmm. So with an R4, you can you put more townhouses, or you could do units. So R4, you can definitely do units, so high yield. Whereas an R3, you couldn't put units on it. And same with uh, with units, you can also do boarding houses again, further increasing your yield. So with that particular deal, uh, the whole uh, street was zone R4, and that house at the end was R3. So we saw the potential of uh, pushing that, arguing to, with council why that last house should be an R4. Um, it was probably left as an R3 many, many, many years ago for whatever reason. Um, but we argued that it's no longer uh, necessary to be an R3 uh, site. So we got it through in, in two years. Um, and the DA, well, not the DA, the cost of our town planner was about 5000 It wasn't even much uh, compared to, say, if you're a full-blown DA. So, yeah, that was a, a, a good win. And so what gave you the idea to do that? Were you seeking out a, that particular kind of property with an R3 zoning or was it just uh, serendipitous that you came across it? Um, look, I guess with uh, we do a lot of education courses and we actually have a lot of, I guess you can say, tools and strategies in our, I guess you can say, our tool belt. And Every time we see a potential, we'll see what sort of um, strategies we could utilize. And that's something that we came across. We weren't actually looking for that sort of deal because that sort of deal is actually quite rare. Um, to, to find something that, you know, the last one is an R3 is rare. It was something that we came across and we remembered some of the things that we've learned in the past that, hey, we could potentially rezone ourselves. So that's how, how it came about. We, but we weren't seeking for that um, particular deal per se. Yeah, and even two years is you know a fair amount of time to go through that process to get it changed over. Mm. And did you say it doubled in value? Yeah, yeah, we doubled that in value. We bought it uh, for about under seven hundred thousand dollars, and then we managed to sell it for above one point three. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, <laughs> that's a nice project. Well, just, you, yeah, you can't just find those push. all the time. No, they're rare. They, they don't <laughs> come along that often. But, you know, um, I think if you have the right information in your tool belt and something comes up, you know what to do with it, then the opportunity is there. Um, I think luck plays uh, a part, but also you've got to have that knowledge to, to do that. 
Yes, very good point. And then what was next? What was the next project? The, uh, the, the six next, townhouses? Uh, no, the next one we did was actually a, uh, a subdivision. So we were doing a lot of cosmetic renovation and then we moved on to structural renovation. So we were doing – that was our main thing was structural renovations. And then we came about a, a site – uh, where we saw the potential of uh, subdividing it, uh, but there was no guarantee with development, as we know. Uh, but we made, we thought, okay, as in a few, there were a few exit strategies. So if we couldn't get the subdivision, we could do what we normally do, which is structurally renovate the house and sell it off and flip it, right? So this was a deal where we were quite comfortable in where we were going to go in and structurally renovate it. But while we were lodging the DA to structurally renovate it, we also lodged a DA to subdivide uh, the site with the house on it. And in the beginning, we got knocked back. Uh, but you, And I remember at that point in time, uh, I tried to understand why council rejected it. I, uh, sometimes it's good to always understand that no is not usually the final answer. So we went back to council and try and understand why they rejected us so coldly. And um, after we find out a few things, we kind of, they don't really tell you exactly, especially in the area where I'm working in Sydney, there are certain councils very difficult to understand and they don't really tell you why they rejected you. So after gauging a bit, you kind of understand why. <laughs> I, think that's, uh, I think that's a universal <laughs> problem. Yeah. <laughs> trying to so, understand councils. Yeah, yeah, try to understand. So after gauging a bit, we kind of kind of could read, a, you know, between the lines, we lodged a DA and uh, we got it through the second time we were uh, able to subdivide it. Uh, and so again, that, that... Sorry, that yeah. was one into two? Yep. Okay. Yeah, that was and, one into two. And so two. what were the issues that council had that you were able to overcome? Um, so... I guess a lot of objection. So when there's a lot of objection on the street, especially when you're subdividing in a low density area, council would straight away reject for very, uh, what's the reason? No reasons, really. Some of the reasons that didn't even make sense to my town planner. And when we read that letter, it was more just an excuse just to palm us off to tell us to just uh, withdraw the DA. Um, but we so one of the things was we wanted to go a double story uh to torrance title two homes um we decided to not go double story and we just you know comply with everything except for the subdivision so that was the part that we weren't exactly complying was the minimum lot size um but we had a good town planner that could help us to present a good case why it should and can be subdivided and because we met most of the um, council requirement uh, we we managed to get it through so I remember reading the DA um, approval where the council addressed all the objections from the council and they were at the end very supportive of that um, subdivision. Oh that's good and were you using the same town planner that you used on your other rezoning project? Yeah yes yeah, the same town planner he's uh, he's a unique breed, like they call it, a town planner slash architect. So they could design houses for you at the same time to understand the town planning rules as opposed to someone who's just an architect and then they have to go and outsource a town planner to then support the case. So in this case, we were lucky that we found a architect slash town planner that understood the area in which we're working in. And is that someone that you just found over time through your other projects? Uh 
I guess it's over time with other professionals. So it was uh, we had used other architects in the past, and we weren't exactly too happy. They were fine. They they did a good job, but when we were, you know, we're always looking for someone new, someone better. So we actually asked uh, a, sol- a solicitor, and he referred us to this particular architect, and we were happy with the results, and so we continued using him, and we're still using him today in um, our current project. Have you got any tips about getting those A players on your team? Is there any little secrets that you can share with us or how you go about it? Um, I think a good one to start with is referrals. Um, I think a, a good referrals is one. Second one is reading up on your local DAs. So if you've seen a project that you've walked through the open house and you like what they've done, um, look up the DA on that council website and try and find out which architect did the work and um, then have a chat to them and, and see whether it's someone that you want to work with. In fact, that's um, one thing that I know a lot, not many people do and I found a lot of good um, architect um, th- through uh, looking up DAs. In fact, the boarding house one, it's a different architect because um, not, all, uh, not all architects can do everything, right? They, they're specialised. So the boarding house one, I actually have to start from scratch. So with that one, I actually uh, found this architect because he, they were working on a block of units across the road. And I read up on the DA and they actually went to court and won in an environmental court. And so when an architect has actually won an environmental court, you know they know what they're doing. So I approached them and I found out they're actually – uh, as per another agent said, a gun in the industry for boarding houses. So that's actually a very, very good way to to find out is through your local council website's TA. Try and hunt them down. Yes, I agree. That's a really rich source of how you can find good people who should understand or do understand the intricacies of that particular council that you're looking to work in. Yeah, Um I guess with referral is good, but I have heard stories where referrals end up um, pe- quite pear-shaped, and I think I've heard a few stories now, which is a bit sad. Usually, when people refer you a consultant, um, you should be, you know, okay. Um, but I heard, you know, now there's there's a few stories, and I'm not sure is it because sometimes there's these B, I'm not BNI meetings where I think they have quotas that they have to meet that they have to refer a certain amount of business to the people within the network, for example. So sometimes I think there's that issue. But I think if you go to the council website, you know they're familiar with the council. They've got it through at a reasonable amount of time. You know, they didn't take like two years to get a DA through. They took six months or nine months. You know that they know what they're doing. You know, it's proven track record. Yeah, so we might come back to the uh, the self-contained units or the boarding house shortly but yeah. just going back to the so the project that you then got the DA for the subdivision what happened mm. there did you build that one out or what happened oh uh, yeah so we uh built that one out uh first so one year to get the DA and then the second year uh to build uh it took longer than expected because um the builder had some issues like most developers have um uh, builders, but we were lucky that uh, the market held up. Uh, it didn't dive during the delay, but all in all, it was a two-year project. We sold it off and uh, we made about 44% margin on that. Um, 
I think we were rewarded with a good margin because that site wasn't, um, uh, I guess, what's the word? It's it's not something that people know that you could subdivide. Sometimes it, if you look at a site, if everyone knows you can subdivide it, that's when people will be paying a lot of premium and then you end up bidding for that premium. Uh, but for that site, we knew the market very well and we knew what can be pushed with council. And um, that's how we were able to get that higher margin for that development. And so did you knock over the existing house or did you build on the back? Uh, we built at the back. So we gutted the house at the back. We kept um, most of the walls actually. Um, we just basically did an extension. Okay. And so what was the delay with the builder? Um, unfortunately, it's a builder that we've used before um, and he was quite good. But unfortunately with um, this particular builder here, uh, we think he expanded too much and he took on a huge job um, with, a, with, an, with another developer and they end up going to court. Um, it affected our development because we were caught in the middle of it. So in the end, uh, we just had to manage uh, the timeline with him and just be uh, ha- had to micromanage him a bit. And we were lucky to actually get across the line and got it finished. So um, I guess... Um, Live and learn. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that's uh, a big part of developing is living yeah. and learning. Yep. And so then what, what was the next project after that? Uh, the project after that, we then went on to working on a six-townhouse development. Uh, we put that under an option. Um, so we, tell, us, yeah, tell us a bit more yeah. about that. Where, what was the size of the land? How did you find um, it? How did you the get land, the option working? Yeah, so we actually uh, was referred to uh, that site. There's a particular person that we knew on that street and we got he was interested in selling. So he then connected us up with the rest of the street and we basically door knocked through the connection of the person on the street um, and spoke to the rest of the neighbours on the street to see who was interested in amalgamating the land. Um, We started off with about six properties and people get a bit greedy uh, with what they wanted for the house and the whole project wasn't feasible. Then we end up with two, so from six blocks to two blocks. Um, Then with the two blocks, uh, with uh, each on a house on it, so two houses, two blocks, and we negotiate an option on the development. Uh, the actual price took about a couple of weeks to agree on, but to negotiate the option contract took six months because um, solicitors wants to make sure that everyone is protected. And when they do that, you have to renegotiate certain terms. And you know the actual price took a couple of weeks, but the terms took six months to to get it sorted um but at the end it would you know it did go through uh so six months to negotiate the option then about 18 months to get the da because it got knocked back um a few times and we even end up going to ihap which is a independent hearing panel in council because we were the first on the street to do townhouses on that street uh we did end up getting what we wanted but it was a bit delayed uh, so with that one, we are currently negotiating with um, a few developers as to who would want to come in and take on the project with us. So it would be a JV if if the negotiations go through well. 
Okay. Can, can yeah. I just take a step back? I've got quite a few yeah. questions to ask yeah, you yeah. there. Are you, are you able to share some of the basics about the option terms? Yep. So the option terms, we uh, it was a uh, 1.5% option fee that we paid, 18 months uh, contract. But look, I think there's no norm. I think a lot of people say, oh, the norm is like 2% or whatever. I've heard people have done 1% even. Um, but it's it's up to you to negotiate that. For us, we were able to get 1.5%. Uh, it was 18 months. Um, try and remember what else. It was in terms of the uh, we wanted vacant possession was one thing because uh, as soon as you finish, uh, as soon as they move out, you want to be able to start construction straight away something that's quite important um although one of them had a tenant in it so we had to negotiate the terms to allow them to give them time had if we were going to exercise it to get the tenant out on time um with other terms it, it took a while to negotiate in terms of i guess the the penalty, I remember this was a bit of a almost – the deal almost fell over because of the penalty. So, But because there were two parties, we argued that should one party could not um, settle, that no one is to charge a uh, late penalty, for example. But the solicitor on one or the other well, one or the other property said that, well, then my client is going to get penalized. Uh, it's going to lose on opportunity costs, you know. That you should. It's not their fault that it's late. So that took a while to negotiate. Where we had to try and understand what you know, what is it that they're concerned are uh, concerned about. And in the end, we they were concerned about the fact that they're losing rental income because if their tenant has moved on, because they were going to give us vacant possession, um, they were going to be losing out on money. So in the end, we agreed on if we were late they could walk away after four weeks so that their, their losses are cut short. So we, we agreed on that, you know, had to meet in the middle in the end because they, they understand that we can't be penalized on something and could drag on forever with late settlement. So that was one thing that uh, I remember it took a while to get over um, the hurdle. Yep. Um, so that was just one of many that uh, we had to negotiate. But um, at the end of the day, it was – really trying to understand exactly what was the concern from the vendor. Uh, and that was, for this particular one, it was that concern. So we, we had to try and negotiate that back and forth through the solicitors. I was about to ask that, whether you were talking directly to the vendors or whether it was going through intermediaries. Yeah, it was a funny one. We actually negotiated directly with the vendors. So one of the vendors is overseas and one is here. So we actually, one of the vendors, we nego- the hard one, we negotiated through emails and we were negotiating all that in the beginning all fine. But and when the solicitors got involved, one of the solicitor did not want their client to be negotiating directly with us. So he wanted us to go through our solicitor and their solicitor. Um, so that make it a little bit harder as well because you're not sure whether the information was being um, conveyed correctly as well. Yes, yep. Uh, yep. So, I mean, we even got an angry email from the solicitor to say, please do not contact my client again. Contact me directly. So, you're going to have to walk an eggshell sometime to try and satisfy all parties, especially solicitors, because they could break the deal 
um, although I have a lot of respect for them, but sometimes some of them do, um, you know, break the deal for, for all of us. But um, for this particular one, you, we had to deal with um, the solicitors, but, uh, but you know, we, you just have to take it case by case basis. And with the solicitor that you used, was that a specialist in terms of doing options or how did you come across them or had you been using them for a while? Um, we have been using this particular solicitor for a while, but before we did the option, we made sure that he had experience in doing options um, before we proceeded uh, because nothing worse than if they don't understand the option, that's just not going to help. But yeah, we, we knew option was something that uh, the solicitor have to have experience in um, before they could do it. And how did you confirm that they did have that experience? You said you took a bit of time making sure they did. How did you do that? Um, it was actually the partner, the solicitor that we have been using for a while. We have been using for the last 10 years. So when we spoke to him, he actually referred us to his partner. So we didn't, we, it's the same firm, but it's a different solicitor in that firm. And he vouched that his partner's done it before. So I guess for us, we trusted the solicitor for the last 10 years, so we can only go by his word. Um, it's not like they're going to give you a document to say they've done it. Um, end of the day, really, it's um, you've got to trust some of the consultants or you could trust some of your friends' referral and sometimes they don't even work out right. Yes, yeah, so a referral is good, but it's not always a guarantee that it's going to be yeah. perfect because it, mm. it comes back to your personal interactions and things can happen. You can have a clash of personalities, all sorts of things that can go on. Mm. Um, okay, so then you mentioned that you had some difficulties getting the DA. Can you talk us through what those challenges were? Yeah, so I think, the, okay, the actual DA was fine. The council was very supportive of it from day one. But the problem was uh, one of the neighbours. So one of the neighbours actually wanted to sell us his site, um, but there was actually um, an easement over the land. So we told him this, that, you know, we can't amalgamate your land with our two lands because there is no financial benefit in getting, in taking one more. It's either we take three, oh, no, sorry, either we take two or four, we can't do three you know three and two it's just you know there's there's no big financial benefit so we told him we couldn't do it and I think there was a little bit of a sour grape um <laughs> in that scenario so because of that he was lobbying really hard to uh, against the DA uh he turned up at every council meeting um, um I'm not sure where he got his um architect from to write a long letter attacking every single thing on the town planner's report. It's because he's not a town planner. He's actually um, um, a real estate agent. So they're not that technical, but the, the type of letter that he wrote was so technical, you knew it came from either a town planner or architect. So I don't know where he got uh, a professional to actually uh, write that very technical letter to council and really hammered the DA. And because of that, council had to uh, tread very carefully because it's the first one on the street. Um, they don't want too many complaints because that will set a precedence as well for the rest of the street. Um, because of that, we got knocked back the first time. And because we not, not got knocked back, we have to go to IHAP, which is an independent hearing. And then 
from the independent hearing, we got knocked back to do more things because um, usually when you're at those panels, they're even stricter with, uh, with what you can and cannot do. We were actually complying mostly, but council can still have their discretion in regards to uh, put more trees there, put more screening, even though we have enough screening, um, but they want you to put more there, for example. So it's to their discretion. And another problem with IHAP is that they don't usually, they get filled up very quickly, even though they have the meeting once a month. So even though we have the meeting, say, in uh, June, it's not like you could go to the next IHAP meeting in July. Um, they might be filled up June, July, uh, August or September, and then you can't go to the next one until three or four months later. So again, that delays your whole DA. So that is another added complexity to the delay. So those were the challenges, but um, those were things that you couldn't have planned for. You know, we, we knew we had a good architect who knew the rules. We were, we were most, we're 99% complying and council was in support of it from day one. But it was these things that came into play and you just had to be prepared for it. And what size land are you talking about here? Um, it's a 1,001, just over 1,100 square metres. For six townhouses so underground parking. The consolidated lots or the con- yeah yeah yep. okay. Mm. Uh, and so what happened? What was the outcome there? You ended up getting your approval. Yeah, we did eventually get our approval um, because in from the very beginning we were complying. Uh, it was a matter of time that we were going to get that approval, but it was just the particular person on the street lobbying and getting people to sign petitions, and council just had to be strict and show that they're doing everything they can to make sure that they've addressed every single concern that the neighbours had. Uh, so we did get it in the end. Um, so now we're just uh, working through with uh, uh, other developers as a joint venture. And so what are you looking for there with the joint venture? Um, because it's a slightly bigger development than we used to, um, and it's also underground parking, so it's higher risk there. So we are looking for an experienced uh, developer, and we are speaking to a few now and hopefully leverage off their expertise as well. Okay, good. Well, hopefully you find someone. Yeah, and, so we're in talks with them, yeah. Oh, great. And then what about the big one, 49 Yeah, so that units. one, fingers crossed we're going to lodge the DA either today, if not tomorrow. Um, that one there, uh, it was originally a site for uh, a unit block, um, but with the market downturn at the moment, we have to change direction, um, and that's actually the case for a lot of other developers as well. There's a slowdown in unit developments, so we had to then make a decision on what's the best use of that land, and after speaking to the local uh, architect uh, he suggested that boarding house is probably the way to go. And that's how we've gone down the path of uh, boarding houses. So with the boarding house, um, it's going to be – the site is 1,000, just over 1,000 square metres. And it's 20 metres frontage, so it's quite a wide, flat block. Um, and we're going to be putting – 49 uh, new, new generation self-contained boarding houses on there. It's uh, in Canterbury as well. So, again, an area that we're very familiar with. We know the demographic. Uh, we know it's very close to uh, Sydney city central 
and also very close to um, a few uh, shopping hubs as well. So it's a good location and only about maybe 15 minutes walk to the train station. Uh, so the site is a good site. Um, in terms of the DA, uh, so far we haven't had too many hiccups. I guess it's still early days and I'm prepared for it. Uh, we know it's nothing is smooth sailing, uh, but I'm confident that with the architect that uh, I've uh, engaged, uh, that he should know what he's doing. Uh, he knows the process. It's not the first time he's done boarding houses in that particular council. He's done many. So he knows exactly what to do. And I've also spoken to real estate agents that has um, sold a lot of his sites that's done by him, not his site, but clients' sites that's done by this same architect. And they know of him. And I guess it's reassuring that uh, I found someone that they've described as gun in the industry. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, there's nothing again, you know, even from a referral or I found him from a DA document, um, nothing is guaranteed whether or not they're good consultants. So I'm thankful that I found him and fingers crossed uh, things go um, our way next couple of months. And so what's a, when you to say a self-contained boarding house, what, what does that look like? Is that, how's that different to say an apartment or, and who is, who does it, who does it serve? What, who would be the end buyer or the yeah. resident? So I think with um, New South Wales, it's probably the only state that has this one. It's, they call it the new generation boarding house. So they count, the government is encouraging people to build boarding houses that has their own bathroom and kitchenette. Uh, hence the word self-contained. So the easiest way to explain it, it's probably mini studios. So um, because you're building and lodging a development under a boarding house uh, legislation, you can get more uh, floor space ratio um, and a lot of concessions that you get from the planning rules um, because you're meant to be affordable. So the rooms can be as small as 16 square metres uh, or even smaller, I've seen ones that are smaller, to about 20, 30 square metres. But mine are about 20 to 25 square metres, so they're quite generous in size. It's, it's like a normal sh- unit studio, but the only difference is between a boarding house self-contained to a normal unit studio is that you could sell the studios. So you could sell them down as strata, but a boarding house, you couldn't strata them. It's a rent, it's a built-to-rent model. Um so it's quite popular at the moment in New South Wales because it's um, generating um, high yield. So you could either build it, uh, take it all the way to build and then sell it or you could keep it or you could get the DA and just sell it off to another developer who wants to build it and sell it. So it's quite flexible at which stage you actually want to cash out. So at this stage, um, our plan is to uh, sell it. Um, so we are working very closely with the architect to make sure that it's a very sellable DA-approved site. Um, or even if we uh, want to build it ourselves, it's still going to be a very cost-effective build for us personally and then and then sell it after we build it or we could keep it. So um, many exit strategies. Mm. So it's kind of like a motel room, similar sort of size and layout. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah like, like a whole, almost like a hotel. Some of them I've seen even furnish them to feel like a hotel uh, and then you attract. Now, the thing is with boarding houses as well, when people hear the word boarding houses, na- usually the neighborhood would lobby against it because they go, oh, you know, it's drugs and um, unemployed, that sort of thing. 
I think in the past, yeah, you have to agree with that to a certain extent because a lot of people that's unemployed, um, drug use and all that attract that sort of people into boarding houses. But these days with boarding houses, we get a lot of, um, you know, singles uh, where they just need um, a room that's clean. They don't necessarily, and, you know, and a lot of them are coming from living out of state, just coming, and they just need a room to work Monday to Friday and then they go back for the weekends, for example. So these are proper people, proper professionals with good jobs, uh, wanting a safe and clean and new place to live in. So um, these would be the type of tenants that you'll be getting in as well. And also another distinction that has to be made is it's also different to an affordable house. So with affordable living, uh, you actually have to give a set of uh, – units to the government then they would actually rent it out at below 30 percent below market rent but with boarding houses you don't get that restriction so you are actually in full control of how much you actually want to rent it out obviously you're not going to be getting the same as if it was say a strata unit block but it'll be pretty close um, the reason you're not going to get as much because you are feeding a lot of people in that one block versus say an apartment looting um, you're going to obviously have maybe a pool, a gym, that sort of stuff. But with the boarding houses, you, you're cramming a lot of people into that one block. But if you're not, you're not, if you're not going to be silly and put 13 square meter rooms, then you still feel quite luxurious in a 25 square meter room. So if you've got Ikea, they actually furnish a 25 square meter room and it actually feels quite luxurious. And how many levels are you talking about? Um, for my particular development, it's uh, three levels plus an attic. So you're not going to see the fourth level. It's going to be a setback. Um, but it, but that's because my area is an R4. You can actually build units on it, whereas other people, they might be only able to do a single level or a double story, for example. But mine is actually going to look like – outside, it's going to look like a unit block, but it's actually all boarding houses and all studios inside. Yeah, interesting. And you said you found your architect because they had done a project across the road that went to yeah. court. Can you – why did it go to court? How did that all work out? Um, they were trying to obviously push the envelope. So they, um, I mentioned earlier about the affordable housing. So when you build a, I'm not sure about other states, but in New South Wales, when you build a block of units, you obviously have to comply with, you know, floor space ratio, whether it's a 0.9 to 1, for example. But if you actually build a, a portion of it, for affordable housing, so basically this is say a portion of your 100 units, uh, unit block, you set aside for affordable housing. So you give it to the government for 10 years to rent out below market price. You will actually get 0.5 additional floor space ratio to, for your development. So for low developers, they actually take advantage of that concession. But to go that far, um, usually council um, are not, usually too happy about that because you're pushing the envelope. So then they take it to court um, and usually, uh, well, depending on how good the lawyer is and the architect is, and they would then help you get it through and get that additional floor space ratio. Okay, that's interesting. And it's quite a diverse <laughs> group of projects that you've got there, Davina. I'm interested in how you... Uh, your mindset in, in terms of coping with that change and dealing with different projects because it's not like you're doing a six townhouse project then moving on to another six townhouse project they're all quite different so how do you how do you cope with the 
the risk and the anxiety of doing different projects? Um, I think for us, we've always been about growth. So we started off doing cosmetic renovation and then we moved up to structural and then we moved up to, say, a one into two subdivision and then one into two subdivision, the next stage was going to be, you know, townhouses, more than two. Um, for the boarding houses, that wasn't something that um, we were originally planned. It was meant to be a block of units because we wanted to go from six townhouses to units. So it may seem that we were kind of like doing a lot of different other projects. But if you, if I take you through that, you know, what I just said, the journey is actually growing um, project by project because if we can take it all the way to the maximum limit, then, you know, you can only aim that high. And if you can't, then you just fall back a little bit and then you keep trying. So that's been how we grow. Um, but in terms of doing smaller projects, uh, we are still doing those smaller projects. So the one into two, because they are lower risk and the reward is just as good. Uh, in fact, we're actually doing one at the moment, working on the DA, um, one into two. And that's something that we would be concentrating on as I guess you can say our bread and butter but the larger projects like the townhouses and the boarding houses would be our ad hoc projects you know when the right deal comes along we just have to adapt you know we can't sit there and go no that site was for units I'm, I'm just going to do you know I'm not going to look at boarding houses so we have to be flexible and listen to you know what the consultants are telling us what the market is demanding so that's how it all came about but in terms of bread and butter that's the one into two the subdivisions and so did you say you had multiple types or multiple numbers of those kind of projects going or is it just the So, one? Uh, well, I talked about the, so the six townhouses, we're in the process of speaking to a JV partner that's more experienced. And then with the uh, townhouses, that's really just paper pushing at the moment. So there's not too much stress there. Uh, and then the one into two uh, subdivisions we intend to do a few more of those because they're smaller and less risky projects so that one's currently going through a DA we just secured that unknown option uh, just before Christmas uh, in this marketplace with the Sydney slowdown it's actually a great time to negotiate hard on terms and that's what we did with this um, small site usually with small sites um, it's quite hard to negotiate options with vendors but given the current market condition they want the price that they want. So then that's when you go in and go, well, okay, I'll give you the price, but I want more than one year option or long-term settlement. And usually they will come around to it and they're more willing to listen as well because they know the market is slow and that's the only way for them to get the price. So we got, I guess, lucky. We're able to secure that also unknown option. So all in all, at the moment, I'm working on um, three deals so uh, hoping to do more of the one into two subdivision because that's our bread and butter. But if there's a bigger deal that comes along um, and it looks good, I can always be reaching out to other people in my network to see whether they want to come in um, and joint venture with me and we go at it as well. So um, I think uh, if there's a good opportunity, I think there's always someone that would look at it with you. Yep. And you've touched on the fact that the Sydney market has softened. Mm. What's your view on that? How are you responding? What do you think is going to happen? What are you feeling about some of the stock that you may have coming up? Um, I'm actually feeling quite excited and a bit 
slightly thankful that there is a bit of a slowdown. It, I remember a couple of years ago when the market was hot, it's actually very scary because you, when, when the market is so hot and it just keeps going up, it, there could be what they call a, you know, a bubble. I know they say, oh, there's never going to be a bubble. But when it's so hot and people are just paying crazy prices, um, you're just asking for it that there will be a crash. So I'm kind of thankful that there has been a bit of a pullback and with that pullback, it means that I can go in and start negotiating deals. Um, I remember it was really hard to get deals when the market is hot because vendors are not interested in talking to you terms. They just want their price. Um, there's no way they're going to give you a 10-day cooling off period. They'll go, no, nah, someone else will, will come along and, and give them that price. So to me, the slowdown is actually a good time to accumulate um, and you, you, you negotiate very hard on terms. And we look forward to actually this year to take advantage of that slowdown and try and get more deals um, under our belt and then launch a DA. And by, hopefully by the time the market recovers, we've already acquired the deals. Uh, the DA is ready to go and we're ready to build. Uh, but of course, no one's got a crystal ball how long this slowdown is going to be. Um, but you, you work that into your feasibility to make sure that you're not inflating your price. You've got to be very conservative with your sale price as well. Okay. And you mentioned that you're very focused on growth and you mm. want to keep getting bigger. What's the, what's the big vision? What's the limit? What's the big, what are the biggest projects or where do you see, your health, see yourself headed to? Um, to be perfectly honest, because... I don't have an exact a mentor that's in the development industry, like an established um, company, for example. So I can't say I know exactly what that looks like. Um, what I do know is you just have to keep growing, and to do that without uh, getting too hammered. You know, I know that you know with development there are risks and there are times where it will be setbacks, but you're just going to make sure that you limit your risks, have have a lot of exit strategies. So for us. What it looks like is, uh, like I mentioned before, at the moment, to me, we continue to do the one to two subdivisions. That's our bread and butter because we feel comfortable and confident with those deals. And we, and with that confidence, we are also bringing other joint venture and money partners uh, with us uh, along the journey. And, because, and also because they're lower risk. Um, and then the larger deals will be the ad hoc ones where if someone approach us um, for those bigger deals, we might look at it if they're good. Um, but that will be on an ad hoc basis. It won't be something that I'll be actively seeking, for example. Um, so that's where I'm at at the moment in terms of where I see myself in 10 years' time, uh, potentially doing more of what I'm currently doing. But who knows, right? As long as you keep growing, I think you can't go too wrong. <laughs> And what do you think you've learned about yourself along the way? Um, I, surprisingly, um, I can think and act a lot better under pressure. It sounds really weird, but sometimes I think back even with the build when I had issues with the builder that was really stressful time when uh, he couldn't finish the build um, and also the time when we – nearly couldn't get the option through from one of the townhouses and we were really under pressure to come up with a solution and you think back and you go oh how did you come up with the idea and I can only think that when you when you know the situation arrived and backed me into a corner I really had to think hard to try and come up with a solution and I think 
when I'm under pressure, actually do quite well. Uh, having said that, I probably, sh- you know, one shouldn't always be under pressure because otherwise you're not going to enjoy the journey. Well, and what do you reckon is the most difficult business decision you've had to make along the way? Uh, the most difficult one is probably the most stressful one, and that's the one I mentioned earlier with the builder. So we were quite up to our necks with uh, repayments and debt for the subdivisions, um, and the builder had issues uh, with his other development. But regardless of that, he still pushed for us to pay him about at the time $15,000 as final payment without finishing the work. So you can imagine, you know, being at that point where, you know, do you pay him $15,000 so that he would finish the work or take him to court to argue, to say, um, I don't agree with you that you finished, so I'm not paying you the $15,000. But to do that, it's going to cost me $20,000 to go to court. And on top of that, paying interest on a development site that is not finished um, and on top of that, he actually stopped work and locked us out of our development. Um, look, we actually had, had we actually in really good relationship with this builder in a different development, but he was just in a really bad space because he was going through court in another development. But so he affected us. So I remember that time um, I was actually seven months pregnant, and when he did that to us, it was quite a kick in the gut you know, blocking us out from our own site. And luckily for us, it wasn't our home. It was actually a deal, just a development site. But if it was someone's home, um, I think that person would be quite emotionally drained. So in the end, we made the decision to pay him the $15,000 and not go to court and hope that he would do the right thing. So I think luckily for us, he did eventually get everything done, get us the uh, certificates that we needed um, and then we were able to then submit that to our private certifier and get the OC. But you see, that could have worked out very differently where he would run away. I mean, what can we do then? Come up with another fifteen, twenty thousand 20000 to go to court to go after him. So that was quite stressful because he could have sent us broke. Um, you, know, you know, can you imagine paying for interest for property as well as that trying to fund a court case if we were to go after him? So that's one of the ugly side of development and it nearly broke us. Um, we nearly said, you know, we don't want to do this again. Uh, but after we, uh, you know, went through it uh, and we got the product on the market, had it furnished, all nice, ready to go, sold it. Then we thought, think back and go, okay, well, next time we got to make sure that um, we have a good contract. But again, good contract may not necessarily um, – protect you from that either right contract is just a piece of paper really you still got to go to court so you know, after you pass it you gather up your courage again you just keep going so but we've gone through that but at least it's on us on the bright side it was on a small deal i can't imagine doing that but in a multi-million dollar deal yes that would be uber stressful i can imagine yeah. yep yep and i'm keen to get your views on women in property development or more specifically female property developers i mean I'm, on my show the vast majority of guests that i have are males mm. so i'm just curious about your view on why there aren't more women developers how, how more could get involved what what's your thinking yeah. on that how, and uh, how do you and how do you find being a, a female property developer um well about maybe 
seven, ten years ago when I first started in property uh, renovations, um, structural renovations, um, def- there was definitely a boys' club. I try to form relationships with the tradies so that um, you could help you out with certain things or to at least um, help you understand what's going on. And it was very hard to form that relationship. So I didn't force it. So what I did was I just played to my strength. Um, I put myself in the background and be the organizer and I pushed my husband to do more the FaceTime with the builders and let him build what they call the bromance um, <laughs> with the tradies. And if I wanted something done, I will push my husband there and say, can you ask them to get that done and, you know, things like that. So they're, they're more, they, they seem to be more okay if the instructions came from a man versus from a woman about seven, ten years ago. But, look, I think now, I think now he's changed a bit. I think um, the landscape has changed and there, I do see a lot of lot more women doing developments, whether it's renovation, structural or whatnot. And I think that's probably to do with some of the female leaders that have been in the industry. So one that I could think of is Sheree Baba. I'm sure you know of Sheree Baba. And also The Block as well. There's a lot of, they showcase a lot of women taking leadership roles. I think more of that, people give women the courage to go out there and and think, you know, I can do this too and I'm not intimidated. Um, You know, because I'll be honest, in the beginning, I was intimidated. So I, I, decided that I'm going to take the behind the scenes role but now I actually um, go on site so the you know the, the project I talked about where we had issues with the builder I actually went on site and put up butcher's paper onto the windows I had timetables with tick boxes on them and I managed through them um, on site that way I don't think I'll be able to do that seven ten years ago because they would have been quite defensive because it came from a woman I feel um but I think now it's a bit better. Uh, but I think it will get better given the more and more women coming into the scene and empowering other women along the way. Uh, and I think it will just be better for the industry to get more women on in it because I think you, a more balanced view and the culture will definitely change. The, the culture in the building industry, you know, a bit of a boys' club, so you can imagine – you know, it could be a bit rough and even jokes can be boys centric. So I think to have more women, um, it would definitely be more welcoming to other women to come into the industry. Well, 50% of the uh, end buyers market out there are female. So (laughs) it makes sense to have a more fair representation of them during the development process, I would have thought. Mm. And I wanted to ask you about your the name of your company. So it's Favela Developments. Is there some symbolism or what's the, the reasoning for the name of the company? Yeah, um, I'm not sure if you know the word uh, favela in um, the, the, the ghettos in South America. So basically, you know, the, the huge ghettos where it's like a whole hill full of those um, very poor people with very derelict houses, those that area is actually called favelas. Um, so my husband actually went on a trip there and when he came back, he said, oh, you know, why don't we call our business favela developments because that's what we do. We look for derelict homes, um, tight homes, and we transform them. And that's how favela, the name favela came about. But we actually started off as favela renovations 
And then we evolved, and now we also operate under the name of Favela Developments. And yeah, so that's how it came about. Yeah, I was going to ask you about how that works out having a partner that's in the business with you. How does how do you go having a a partner? I mean, your business partners, but because yeah. a lot of people often will email me and say, "Oh, their their wife or their husband they want to they want to do development or they're into property, but their partner." isn't and they are fear, their partners are fearful of them getting involved or the risks involved and it, they feel that it holds them back? Yeah, yeah, I can understand that. Look, I think I'm pretty lucky that um, my husband um, actually also like property and we complement each other's skill set. Um, I think the key for us was the complementing each other's skill set. So um, I can negotiate but I may not be very forceful, for example. So I'll come up with all these ideas in the background and then I'll send my husband in to negotiate. I think sometimes when it comes from a man, sometimes people take you more seriously with the solicitors. Again, back to the whole how does woman what does what role does a woman play? It's not like I don't it's not like I don't think women can do it. I think women can do it, but for me, I think, well, I've got a man here. I might as well utilize him and send him in with the persona that looks like a developer. So, and I'm also, um, I, I'm quite, I do a lot of research as well. So I, I read a lot. So reading through the DAs I mentioned earlier is not something my husband do as well. So I do that. And then he'll do something else. He will maybe go on site and manage the builders or the tradies, for example, and I might do something else. So we, we play to our strengths. So so that way we don't get into arguments. So he, I will trust him in certain things and he'll trust me in certain things. So we don't overlap. Um, it's the same thing like organizing our wedding. Um, you know, I know he doesn't like to organize certain things, so I'll do it and I'll just say, well, you just turn up. And we had no arguments for the wedding <laughs> because that's how people don't end up getting to weddings because they have arguments with the um, organization. So I think that could maybe, I don't know, maybe that could be how it's it, it, managed to work out so many years and I am thankful to to have him as a business partner and we talk uh and because of that we're also able to live and breathe property uh we would anywhere we are in the car whatever we're always brainstorming what our next stage is, next strategy next negotiation you know that we're pretty lucky in that sense Yes, I can imagine that would be beneficial. I think my wife would get uh, quickly bored of me talking about developing. I know she does. <laughs> yeah, so we are. Very, I'm very, very thankful for that, yeah. Oh, awesome. And how do you keep learning and innovating or, um, or what do you do to seek inspiration for your developments? Um, I like to go to open houses. Um, I think that's the best way to keep updated. So I like to concentrate in a particular suburbs and know exactly who is buying your product. So I would go to open homes to see what's selling really well and try and take inspiration from that. That's uh, one way of doing it. Uh, and the second one is I keep attending courses, uh, even though I might be attending a course and they'll be telling me some things that I already know, but there will always be one thing that you'll pick up that will benefit hugely in what you already do. Uh, so I guess in the past we were a bit tight where we couldn't afford to invest too much on education, but given that we've been quite lucky with a few of our profitable deals, we're now actively investing back in a lot more education. Uh, and we're not just investing in education specifically on developments. We'll be uh, doing education on, say, rooming accommodation, 
um, Airbnbs, because the marketplace is always changing. And I do think uh, you need to adapt in order to know what's going on as well. So, and the third thing is, uh, and also network. So by networking, um, people will tell you where the uh, new courses are. In fact, uh, you know, I found you through um, an, another person that I know through the property network. You know, I think uh, networking is such a powerful thing to have uh, where people can actually tell you that there's more out there, there's better out there. So that's how I continue learning. And in the last couple of months, I've been doing a lot of that and that's really exponentially helped me learn a lot. Oh, fantastic. So if you could then go back in time and talk to yourself, what age would you go back to and what would you say to, uh, to Davina? Uh, and that's why? A hard... <laughs> <laughs> that's a hard one. <laughs> uh, I would say I would go back to when maybe about 10 years ago bef- when I had the opportunity to do um, – a secondment. So I remembered back when I was, I work in a financial industry. I, I currently still work full time or you can say four days a week uh, where I had the opportunity to go to a different department in banking. And I went into credit risks, which is good. I learned about credit uh, and the risk, but had I gone through say a secondment in, for a couple of months uh, in say development finance, uh, I think that would have opened a lot of doors for me. Um, I would have been able to work in a development finance company, a mezzanine finance company, and I think that would help me immensely today um, in development because I think funding uh, is actually quite an important part of development if you were to move forward. And I think a lot of huge development companies are able to move forward and grow is because they've got that right. And it's interesting that you touched on finance. Do you have any exposure to the lending market at the moment or how are you funding projects? Uh, with funding the projects, in the past we've um, done it all ourselves and we've been lucky enough to come across one or two money partners that supported us in the last seven to ten years. But that only limit us, us to say one or two deals uh, but to do more deals, we would need to get more to learn to work with more, uh, whether it's a joint venture partner or a money partner. So, so I guess this year we are being more open to working together with other people in order to uh, move forward in terms of uh, plugging the gap, I guess, in funding. Um, I have worked closely with uh, my mortgage broker, understanding how commercial development finance work as well. Um, I spend a lot of time trying to understand how things work in different scenarios because by doing that, you could help yourself a lot better. Um, That's what I realized when doing residential funding uh, in retail for my renovations, that when you understand funding and how it works, you can actually present certain deals and how to structure it to your broker and then they will go away and ask the bank whether they can do it. But if you don't take the time to understand funding, um, you're at the mercy of the broker of what they can offer to you in terms of um, loans. So I think funding is actually quite a very important thing to understand. I, I do feel that I have a lot more to learn. 
I've only learned it through my broker. But had I worked in the funding industry, I think um, I'll have an even more competitive edge. But look, I don't regret where I am today. Uh, I'm sure that by missing out on that, I'm doing something else. So you, you make do what you have now. Awesome. So what would you say is your top tip for other developers out there who would be looking to take their business to the next level? Um, I'm tempted to share a lot of tips, but I'm just going to keep it short. <laughs> uh, uh, the first one, uh, it's a tip that was um, given to me by another uh, very successful developer uh, in, in Malaysia. And he, we had a chat and he knew I was getting into development and his one-line word to me in Chinese was basically persevere and it's yours. Um, to explain that, it basically means that if you have um, the perseverance to go through it, uh, success will eventually come to you. So when he said that to me, when things got tough, I remember those words and you just have to keep persevering and it will eventually come because it will come to those who persevere. So I still live and breathe those words that he's um, told me. Um, the second one is uh, it's also from very, uh, I guess, his, she's not a um, developer, but she's quite a successful uh, professional. And she's told me that in order for her to be successful, she never takes no for an answer. She would keep pushing and challenging. And that actually helped me with my subdivision. You know, remember, remember when I spoke about when I got knocked back from council once, my town planner and architect actually said to me, oh, well, maybe we should just go to plan B and just renovate the house. Don't subdivide. I don't think council's going to approve it. But I remember her saying that don't take no for an answer. Try again. So because of that, um, we tried again and I got the subdivision through. So until today, I still live and breathe those words. You know, no is not the final answer. It's you just have to um, keep finding out what, what the issue is, whether it's a vendor um, that you haven't addressed their needs and for um, the council that what is it they really want you to build. Uh, so I think those are the two most important things that's helped me throughout the journey. Yes, well, I spoke to a former FBI hostage negotiator who wrote a book called Never Split the Difference and he was of the view that no is just a good starting point for a negotiation. (laughs) Yeah, but when you're inexperienced, sometimes no, you can think, oh, okay, I'm not going to bother you anymore. So I guess with experience, you learn that, you know, you can keep going forward and keep negotiating. All right. You got any others there you want to share or is can stick to those two? Uh, other things, um, I guess, fundamental. Um, I guess when someone used to tell me, oh, find a mentor and before you go on this journey, um, it, it's quite difficult to go up to someone and go, hey, can you be my mentor? You know, I found that that's not the right approach because it's, it's a bit in someone's face. So what I've done is I actually go and network and have – coffee catch-ups with a lot of people who is experienced. Um, as far as those that were old-school developers that were um, that was introduced to me by my father. Um, so he was a solicitor and had clients who was a developer. So he's really old-school developer. And just sitting down with him um, and seeing what he does and the advice that they, they tell you, um, you can also feel the energy as well. Um, so you look 
up to those and you know you call them your mentors because they may not do exactly what you do but you can live and breathe the, the experience the energy and that helps you through your journey um and then try seeking out more other mentors whether it's uh, mentors in learning um so I, I have a lot of uh, different type of mentors uh in order to 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 keep um learning um in the development journey and also with mentors as well keep you accountable so you can't really go and meet them have a coffee catch up and then the next year you walk down the road they go oh what are you doing and you're like oh i quit uh, you kind of like oh you don't want to do that you kind of they kind of keep you accountable and you got to keep going so um that's a one good way to keep going and you know that someone's there to support you as well excellent well there's some great ideas there davina if people are interested in finding out more about you or the business, where should they go? Uh, they could contact me on Facebook on my personal profile, um, Davina Wong, or they could jump on to um, Favela Development or even on my website, www.faveladevelopment.com, where I have put all my previous uh, portfolio of work um, as well as some of the media that I've been on, like um, magazines, uh, where we've gone on to um, house and home garden, talking about prop, uh, women in property as well, actually. Um, and then we've also got a house featured on um, uh, some uh, domain magazines as well. So they can find out about that. And if it's something that they're interested in, um, reach out. I'm more than happy to to share some ideas with them. Or if they want to work together, I'm open to that as well. Wonderful. Well, Davina, I've really enjoyed talking to you about your property development journey. It's been a, certainly an interesting pathway and I wish you all the best for your future projects. I'm sure they're going to be exciting. Thank you, Justin. Thanks for being on the Property Developer Podcast. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Okay, there you go. I thought that was a pretty fascinating conversation with Davina. What an unusual range of projects she has tackled. Here's three things I took away from our chat. One, don't be afraid to pivot if things change. I thought it was great that Davina was prepared to change her approach when she decided that the market had shifted and units were no longer the right product type, and she pivoted to getting a permit for a boarding house, a completely different project. This shows a willingness to be flexible and adapt to what the market wants. 2. Understand your risk tolerance. Davina discussed how she is looking to partner with a more experienced developer to help complete one of her projects because she understands that she doesn't have the experience to comfortably complete the project. I think it is a wise move to partner up and mitigate the risk. This shows an awareness of your risk tolerance, but is also a clever way to learn how to complete a particular type of project, but in a safer way. 3. Be prepared to try new things. Now you certainly cannot accuse Davina of sticking to what she knows best. She has been prepared to try new strategies, work the angles, and explore different options if plan A doesn't work out. It certainly shows that there is more than one way to develop property, and lots of opportunities exist out there if you're prepared to go looking for them. Alright, if you enjoyed that fascinating conversation, then why not delve back into some past episodes of the show? and particularly episode 37, where I spoke with Canadian-based developer Dan Barona about some of the unique challenges he faces developing in Ottawa. And it was one of the coldest winters and snowiest winters on record. When my electrician showed up, he couldn't pull the cable because the vinyl on the, on the cable was cracking every time he'd unroll the cable. 
Dan also shares how he moved from renovating properties to doing multi-unit developments. So tune in to episode 37 of the show to hear Dan's story. Don't forget to catch me on Insta and Facebook for all my latest project pics and videos, industry news and other fun tidbits. You can also post a comment on iTunes if you're enjoying the show. And of course, all the past episodes of the show can be found at propertydeveloperpodcast.com. So until next time, keep your options open for that next sweet property deal. You've been listening to the Property Developer Podcast. Tune in next time for more tips, ideas and inspiration to take your developing to the next level. For more developing love, make sure to visit propertydeveloperpodcast.com.